Hello and welcome to I Must Break, this podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of the one and only Dolph Lundgren. This is episode four, and today we're discussing Lundgren's third theatrical feature, the cult classic and heavily underrated Red Scorpion. In this film, Lundgren portrayed Nikolai Rachenko, a Soviet Spetsnaz operative sent in to infiltrate and assassinate the leader of a rebel uprising. However, this super soldier experiences a change in his morals and turns on his superiors, resulting in an all-out war. I'm your host, Sean Malloy, and with me once again is my good friend and fellow Dolph fan, Chris Prentice. Chris, how's it going, man? I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself, Sean? I'm doing okay. I've been really looking forward to discussing this one. Like I said, this is, I feel, um, one of the most underrated films in, uh, in the Dolph Lundgren uh, canon and filmography. And I'll tell you something else. Uh, going back through and um, analyzing these films in chronological order has really been uh, has really been a treat because you really get to see granted we're only three films in but you really get to see him growing and trying new things as an actor something that I feel he is still doing to this day so oh absolutely you know this is uh, only only his third film but I think you see a lot of growth you know between the, between how he was a little little stiff in Masters of the Universe and was able to kind of show off uh, you know, I'm not to say it was a, a, a Oscar caliber performance, but uh, he definitely showed, I think, a little more range in this one, and I think you definitely see some growth between uh, Masters and Red Scorpion. Well, and you know, exactly, and you know, one of the other things that is just you know so remarkable about this film is this is, I feel, one of the first films in Dolph's filmography that was tailor-made, that was tailor-written for him and with him in mind. And I would say, arguably, if you look at all of his films, I'd say, arguably. This one is probably the most character-driven and character-centric film. I don't think there is a shot or a scene in this film that is not occupied by Lundgren on screen. He he dominates and owns this film. This is his movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I, obviously, Rocky Four was a supporting performance. And then in, even though he was the, the lead in Masters of the Universe... Uh, certainly there was a, a big ensemble that he kind of bounced off of and uh, I think we can kind of all agree that you know Frank Langella is, is sort of the person who comes off best in that movie but definitely the case with Red Scorpion is I mean this is all him he's in virtually every scene and you know he, he, the whole movie is, is driven by him Oh, most definitely. And you know what? And something else that I'm, I'm sure we were going to get into, but I feel like it's one of the things we need to front load our discussion with is this, you know, this was circa 19, well, it was released in 1989, but this was, you know, filmed around 1988. So this was right around the time of those big, violent action movies of the 1980s. This was the Reagan era of those action films. And by that, I mean, you know, we saw, you know, Arnold had Commando. Sly had Rambo. Arnold also had Predator. You know, these um, violent, um, pseudo-patriotic, you know, heroes, if you will, who would, you know, mow down entire armies. It was almost kind of a rite of passage 
for an action star to you know take on um, a role of this nature. And so you know, with Lundgren as being the next fledging action hero, an action star, this was his turn. This was his opportunity in his own version um, to bring bring to audiences his commando or his Rambo. Yeah, and, and certainly you know who better to direct that sort of a film than Joseph Zito who had, you know, essentially done similar type of movies with Chuck Norris with Missing in Action and Invasion USA. So, you know, he certainly knew how that that subgenre worked and and I think he was a a real boon to this movie and and yeah, like you said, everybody back in those days had to have a movie like this, you know, your one man army, uh, you know, taking out swaths of uh, of enemy forces with a machine gun. And and yeah, that that this certainly fits perfectly with uh, with stuff like Commando and uh, the the second Rambo film. Oh, most definitely. Well, and you, you say the second Rambo film, but in terms of tone and scenery and just the overall feel, I would say this it could almost be a companion piece to Rambo three. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it it is probably a little closer to to Rambo three, um, but certainly that same style of the uh, the ultimate soldier who uh, you know is been basically just a piece of meat kind of ordered around for for uh, his entire service and then you know finally he's gonna kind of do things his way and he's gonna you know basically you know kill a hundred people and uh, and save the day and uh, everybody's political ideology changes along with his yeah most definitely and I think that that's one of the things that makes the film it makes it almost such a uh, disappointment in the fact that it is such a um a cult classic film, and it is such a wonderful performance from Dolph Lundgren, in my opinion. Um, like I was talking about, you, talking to you earlier, this is one film that every time I watch it, I find myself just enjoying it more and more each time. Um, which makes it all the more sad that it just crashed and burned when it was released to the box office in 1989. Because, like I said, this could—it um, definitely falls within the family of you know of the Rambo pictures and the you know the commando and the predator if you will you know like you said the soldier who just mows down armies and the fact that it just floundered upon its release again no fault of Dolph um, you know there was a lot of internal issues going on um, during the during the film's production but it's one of those things that um, you, you watch it now and you wonder if maybe it had um, different producers maybe handling it or maybe if they had I imagine as we're going to be getting into it, maybe they had chosen a different locale for it to shoot. Um, maybe this might have latched on and maybe this might have performed better. Or maybe if it had been released a couple years prior, um, that, that arguably we could say the fact that it might have been, it might have come just a little bit too late as those, uh, as those type of action heroes and action pictures are kind of fading from the multiplexes. There's a plethora of reasons for why this film did not um, latch on, but it is... It is a wonderful piece to uh, to look at and uh, analyze today. Yeah, I think the biggest issue that prevented the movie from being bigger than it was was uh, Warner Brothers dropping it. I mean, they originally had a deal to distribute it, and I think it would have had a, a, a bit more of uh, advertising. And, and I'm not saying it, was, it would have been a huge hit, but uh, if Warner had backed it, I, I think it would be a little bit more in the public consciousness uh, as, in terms of... Uh, a movie that people might be a little more familiar with, but once Warner pulled out because of some of the the political behind the scenes uh, issues with the film, I, yeah, the the fact that it even was put in theaters at all is kind of a miracle. It really is, it really is a miracle that this even got to um, get to theaters because 
Man, um, considering the, the, the production company then ended up handling it, uh, Shapiro Glickenhaus was, I believe, the name, um, y you know, the fact that they still put it out, it still has just such a wonderful epic look and feel to it that um, you know, it's a shame that it just did not get get the most push. And, you know, I, I, would, I would argue that if Warner did stick with it and did release it, um, maybe Dolph would have, I mean, you know, look, Dolph, Dolph has had a wonderful career since then, but maybe he might have had some uh, some other um, bigger roles that uh, that might have been offered to him, you know, after this, if Warner had handled it. You never know. No, certainly. I mean, Warner, at that time, you know, they were pumping out action movies left and right. You know, this was right around the time that they started producing Seagal's movies. And, uh, and I'm sure if the movie had had performed even just marginally well and, and been a hit on video, which I, it actually ended up being a hit on video, then I'm sure it would have led to, to more opportunities uh, for Lundgren with Warner. You know, eventually they did release uh, Showdown in Little Tokyo, but it, that, that was another one that was a pretty botched release. It did not, it wasn't a very wide release for, for a, uh, an action movie at that point. So certainly I think if, if Red Scorpion had stayed with them and if they had distributed it, uh, it would have been made better things for Dolph. The fact that it went to you know, Shapiro Glickenhaus, uh, you know, I think it was only one of four movies that they actually distributed into theaters. It was probably their biggest hit. Um, but again, they were they just did not have anywhere near the kind of muscle to to get the word out there that Warner Brothers did. No, no, without a doubt, yeah. No, and you know, I mean, it's 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 really. Um, I think it's definitely a testament to Dolph Lundgren's uh, character and his his drive a, as an actor. Just considering, you know, if you look at if you look at his filmography around this time, um, man, he had just gotten hit with bad luck after bad luck after bad luck, um, which is why I feel his career kind of went down into that direct-to-video, you know, path. You know, he had Masters of the Universe, which could have been a huge hit, but, you know, Canon was going under and uh, didn't have the money to properly market it and produce it. So that, you know, that didn't work to his advantage. Red Scorpion came out, again, could have been his next big shot, but then, you know, you had Warner pulling out and this little independent company in the form of Shapiro Clickenhouse putting it out. That didn't work. After that, you have the Punisher, which we're going to be getting into, you know, um, later on in the in the show. But um, that one also had its own issues. So I mean, you know, unfortunately, like I said, bad luck, um, you know, continually kept hitting um, each production um, that that Dolph Lundgren was tied to. But like I said, um, you got to give the guy credit, the the testament to him as an actor to continually thrive and to continue, and he's still working today with all these setbacks early in his career. The fact that he is still working today. It is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a point that, that I had made uh, in our first uh, podcast on Rocky Four is you know look look at the guys who were making these sort of movies you know at that point in the late '80s and how many of them are, are still even somewhat relevant today. You know, not a lot. You know, you don't see uh, Dudikoff doing much or Jeff Speaker no. or a <laughs> lot of these guys, um, but you know. Obviously, guys like Sly and Arnold, they, they're still kind of hanging on because they've got pretty established franchises that, that, that are, audiences are still into. Um, but, you know, Dolph, is, is, he's just a survivor. I mean, he's just he keeps at it. You know, he'll have his stretches where maybe a few years where the movies aren't looking too hot and you're like, oh, okay, maybe that's going to be about it. But he just finds a way to keep, keep going and, you know, keep, uh, keep staying relevant. 
and uh, it, it's a testament to I think his his work ethic and and even you know if he ends up in some pretty shoddy movies from time to time for the most part I think he gives his all and I think he's got a, a reputation as being a, a pretty good professional on the set and I think that's led to him being able to stick around for 30 plus years oh yeah most definitely and you know I think one of the other things that um that that is of interesting to note is you know the fact that around this time you know um and I think you know Jeremy brought this up on the last episode when we discussed Masters of the Universe but you know around this time you had the likes of Van Damme and Seagal you know coming up um you know in the action ranks and so you had Van Damme who was kind of um as Jeremy put it the white Bruce Lee you had Steven Seagal who was um you know using his Aikido skills even Jeff Jeff Speakman had you know his Kenpo style his Kenpo skills and so you have Dolph Lundgren coming on the on the scene who um, you know definitely has the look and has the physique and everything that would rival the Stallone and the Arnold but he didn't really have that that niche if you will you know that 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 thing that set him apart from those other guys and if you look at Red Scorpion um, he's essentially playing Ivan Drago he's essentially playing the exact character as Ivan Drago so I kind of wonder if maybe the fact that he didn't really have a niche early on in his career also kind of kind of hurt him again that's not his fault but I just kind of wonder if maybe that did not work to his advantage early on either yeah I, I would say I think another issue for him early on was bursting onto the scene essentially playing a villain you know I think audiences maybe had him checked in that villain box so yeah he started true. making movies uh, playing the hero you know, I don't know if a lot of, of people were really buying into it. I mean, he he just had made such an impression in Rocky Four that, you know, when he goes on to He-Man and he goes on to Red Scorpion, I think people were kind of like, eh, I don't know if this is the guy we want to root for. Um, he's not he's not Sly. He's not Arnold. Um, you know, he, he's, he's the bad guy. He's the guy that we want to see, you know, get his comeuppance at the end. So, I mean, I think that sort of tainted him a bit. Um, so yeah, it was, it's a difficult, uh, it's a difficult transition for him going from, uh, being known, you know, all around the globe as the guy who, who, uh, killed Apollo Creed. And then now suddenly he's the lead and he's the hero. And I'm not sure people really bought into that. Yeah. And, you know, you could of course argue that, you know, um, uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme, his first couple roles, he did play villains as well. However, those roles that he did, you know, he did the Russian in uh, uh, No Retreat, No Surrender. He also played the antagonist in Black Eagle. But these were films that were not released mainstream right. at all. Right. You know what I mean? And it, it, that quickly became forgotten, I think even by the hardcore Van Damme fans. So Yeah, yeah I mean, I think for all in, intents and purposes... Really, Van Damme's you know first film is is Bloodsport. That was what kind of put him on the map, and that was what really got people kind of buzzing about him. Uh, yeah, as you know, Black Eagle, No Retreat. I mean, obviously, No Retreat, No Surrender. He's basically kind of a, you know lifting a good chunk of his role from Ivan Drago. Um, so yeah. it's 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 a, it's a little a little bit different in that I think the first movie that audiences really realized who Van Damme was was Bloodsport. You know, there he's the hero, so people are more accepting of him in his future films being the hero. Yeah, well, and going back to, you know, Dolph Lundgren portraying this role, okay? So in, in Red Scorpion, Dolph Lundgren, like we talked about earlier, um, portrays Nikolai Ruchenko, who is this Soviet operative. He's a super soldier. He is a killing machine. Um, but if you look at the role, um, 
he's playing it pretty much practically exactly the same as Ivan Drago. He has more lines. He has a different haircut. I will argue it's a pretty sweet haircut, I think, that he has in this film. Um, my wife would disagree. But, <laughs> but um, he, uh, yeah, he, he's playing essentially the same, the same character. And if you really want to, um, you know, Jeremy brought this up in his uh, liner notes for the film that um, can be found on the Synapse Films uh, a special edition disc that came out. But if you really wanted to, you could say that the, the Red Scorpion is almost a spin-off film in a sense um, with the with the character of Ivan Drago which would be obviously that's not the case but um, you know it, it's a fun little theory no and, and I yeah I, I've always kind of figured that as well is that it's, it's kind of an unofficial uh, sequel for Ivan Drago and, and I believe the uh, the the original poster art that was used to, to sell the movie was more or less actually him as Ivan Drago the, the haircut uh, on the the original uh, poster art is essentially the same as what he w- was sporting in Rocky IV. Um, it wasn't really. Oh, it's the same image. I'm pretty sure. Scorpion. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's yeah, the same. So, it's it's a marketing uh, publicity image that they use to kind of help sell Red Scorpion. Yeah. Yeah, most definitely. And so, yeah, you can certainly make that leap that uh, it went from uh, he went right from losing that fight. Uh, to to Rocky and you know went back into the military, uh, continued to uh, to train and become this ultimate soldier and and winds up uh, in Red Scorpion. Yeah, no, so um, yeah, but like it's like I said, it's one of the many things about this film that I think just you know help it last and the rewatchability of it. I recommend anybody who watches Rocky Four and enjoys Rocky Four um, should really make this kind of a tandem piece. To watch alongside Rocky IV, um, one of the one of the things that is different with this film from Rocky IV is it is significantly longer than Rocky IV. You know, we talked about when we were <laughs> when we were talking about Rocky IV, in that it's one of those films that you can watch practically during a lunch hour and then just get back to doing what you want to do. There's there's a much more there's much more going on in Red Scorpion. Like I said, especially with this character, there's a huge character arc um, with this film that we're gonna you know that we're gonna be talking about that. Um, you know, make makes for you know it's it's not that quick view, viewing experience that Rocky Four is. Yeah, there 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 are longer stretches in which there really isn't a lot of action taking place, and it's uh, his character's transformation from essentially an assassin into someone who uh, is, realizes that he's been he's been lied to and that uh, he's he's been turned into a, a killing machine and doesn't want to. Uh, to follow that path any longer so there, there it's it's a much more uh drawn out film in terms of it's not just explosion guns killing for 90 minutes like a lot of his movies it's a little bit longer and there's a, it's a it takes uh it's time a little bit more to establish that transformation oh yeah yeah i mean and you know the second act in itself um the second act of the film is you know it is a little slow, and it does go have some you know such slow stretches. But man, if you want to see some wonderful acting on behalf of Dolph, and if you really want to see a real character arc, you know, um, I would I would argue, you know, you look at his character in Rocky IV, and you look at his character as He-Man. Those are both extremely static characters that don't have really any change whatsoever. But then if you look at Red Scorpion, man, this was this was his movie to show people that he could act, that he was still a badass. Um, and yeah, the, the character arc in this film, I, I again, I would argue, is probably one of the um, best characters I think that he has had the privilege of playing, it, it, especially in terms of arcs. You know what I mean? 
No, definitely. Uh, you know, I think I think the whole plot for this movie is seen later on in one of his films, uh, Men of War. It's essentially the same plot and uh, a lot of the same ideas. Um, I would say I actually like Men of War a little bit more than, than Red Scorpion. Um, but like you said, I mean, this is re this is again, this is his movie. It, it's all everything falls on him, and it's it's not just a constant barrage of killing. Um, he, he it's a little bit deeper. And I remember actually, you know, when I first saw this movie, you know, believe it or not, this is like the first movie I ever rented from a blockbuster. It was it was actually a it was a, it was a big deal when Blockbuster first came to town, and, and this this was the first movie that I ever rented from there. And yeah, you know, I was a, a little bit younger, and I actually wasn't really that into it. I, I didn't really like a lot of the the, the slower parts, and it, it's really just been kind of watching it more and more over the years that I've I've kind of had a more of an appreciation for it, and it's, it's I'm glad that it, it's. Uh, sort of stuck with me and it's one that I've kind of revisited every every few years since I first saw it and now I'm I'm a I'm pretty big fan of it. Well, and you know, um I want to go back you you brought up some excellent points there. Um but yeah, you how you talked about how he pretty much um crafted the same story again with Men on War. He actually did the same story again in Bridge of Dragons, if you remember. Again, yeah. I would not put I would not put Bridge of Dragons up. Um, you know, there's a couple cool things that Bridge of Dragons has going for it, but the whole idea of Dolph Lundgren portraying this soldier who realizes what he is doing is wrong and ends up turning on his superiors. Um, yeah, he's played this character multiple times in his career. Um, but yeah, Men of War is actually another excellent one that I'm looking forward to getting to down the line as well. So, oh, definitely. Um, yeah, but I'm curious. But I'm curious. Um, I was going to ask you, and you already kind of talked about it, but. What was your what was your experience with the film? How were you first introduced to it, um, and and how how did you gravitate to it? I'm assuming did you gravitate to it because you were a fan of Dolph from uh, from Rocky Four and from Masters of the Universe, or was it just a cool looking action movie that you decided to pick up? Yeah, well, once the, when this movie first came out, I wasn't. I mean, I was into action movies, but I wasn't really a hardcore Lundgren fan. And uh, you know, I remember when it first came out. I remember one of my brothers, you know, when we first saw that there was this new action movie with Lundgren, thinking that, that this was the Punisher, because there was all this chatter around that time of, oh, he had done this Punisher movie, and it was going to come out, but then obviously, the more you see of the trailer, you know, you, obviously it's not the Punisher, so it was kind of like this other movie, oh, well, he must have done something before the Punisher, and so I, I remember thinking it looked very cool, you know, at that point, I was a real big fan of Commando, and I thought it had that sort of style to it, so I... You know, I was pretty pumped to, to finally see it. I was a little too young to see it in the theater at that point, but you know, once it, it came out on video, I was really hyped to see it. And like I said, you know, the first time I watched it, I really wasn't that that into it. I, I wasn't I wasn't big on the scenes with the Bushmen. I mean, I think it, at that point, you know, I was maybe maybe like 11 years old or so, and I, I was kind of bored stiff by by those scenes with the Bushmen. And you know, I loved the, the you know the last 15 minutes or so, but uh, through a lot of the movie, I was just kind of just sitting there, just like, what is going on here? So you know, again, you get a little older, you don't necessarily need to have constant barrage of bullets and explosions, and you can kind of appreciate the the quieter moments a bit. And over the years, that's definitely been the the case uh, in terms of my relationship with this movie. Well, and yeah, so everything that you've said, I can definitely relate to. You're, you're a few years older than me, but my experience with this film, and this is one of the many reasons why I was so looking forward to discussing this, is just the nostalgia. The nostalgia with the film. 
um, for me, um, kind of like with you as well, but it is um, definitely something that I remember um, wholeheartedly. Uh, my first exposure to the film um, was it was airing on on local TV. You know, not a lot of people um, remember these days. It seems to have kind of be become one of the things that is <laughs> that has become forgotten in our uh, right. in our in our media. Um, but I remember, um, you know, I was a fan of Dolph Lundgren um, thanks to Masters of the Universe. You know, he that that was the film that was my introduction to him. Um, and so, you know, I first saw it. It was airing on uh, a local TV channel one evening. Um, it was actually Channel Two. And you know, back in the day, I remember Channel Two. Um, this was in Denver. Um, Channel Two, five nights a week, uh, would air a movie from about the seven o'clock to nine o'clock hour. So it'd have a couple syndicated rerun TV shows. You know, from about five to six, they would have the movie go to go to about uh, nine o'clock, and then they'd have the news. And I remember this was Channel Two. And so I remember Red Scorpion was actually one of the films that was that was shown. Um, there was actually a lot of my a lot of my early exposure to Dolph Lundgren was actually um, on Channel Two for these for these uh, nightly movies. I remember um, this is the first time I saw I Come in Peace. First time I saw The Punisher. I remember RoboCop was on. Masters of the Universe was on. Um, the Terminator was on. Pretty much now that I look back upon it, it was mostly like B movies <laughs> that, that were on. But um, I remember Cyborg was on. Um, we talked about how Rocky IV was more of an action movie than it was uh, a boxing drama. And I remember Rocky IV was on. I don't remember any of the other Rocky movies, though, but I remember it was it was Rocky IV. So, um, you know, naturally I was a fan of Dolph thanks to He-Man. So when I saw Red Scorpion that was on, I remember recording it and, you know, watching it. And kind of like you, I was not... Um, that big on it. However, the one thing that I remember the most from this film, and I don't know if you remember these days or not, um, but I remember seeing it in all of the bargain bins where videotapes were sold. Do you remember this? Yes, yes, definitely. I, I you know, because you know, right around the the late later part of the '90s, you know, I I still am big into to buying films. I think I'm one of you and me might be you know two of the last people that are actually still buying physical movies. Uh, but I, I you uh. know, back in the late '90s, I was buying these movies, and I used to I used to remember always seeing there was a two pack of Red Scorpion and I Come in Peace. Yep. That was, like, you'd go yep. to any Suncoast anywhere, they would have that two-pack, the double feature of Red Scorpion and I Come in Peace. And Yeah, which, oddly enough, the picture on that on that box, I think, was from Showdown Little Tokyo, was it not? I, I believe you're right, yes. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and like you said, a lot of people seem to have forgotten these days, but videotapes were, you know, were extremely expensive, you know, to produce. And so if you really wanted to own a movie um, when it came out, um, you'd be paying, you know, over $100. I, I, and I know this is hard to believe for many, but yeah, this was the fact. I mean, you know, you'd pay over 100 bucks. And so this was kind of the rise of the, uh, of, you know, rental stores. You know, this was when rental stores would thrive because, you know, they would buy a couple tapes at these, at these you know, enormous dollars, and then they would end up renting them, you know, to the public to get their money back. Okay, um, yeah, and so I remember. <clears throat> excuse me. A lot of these companies, a, a lot of um, home video companies, would, you know, kind of rise from the ashes, and they kind of saw that, um, you know, there was a market for this. And one of these companies was Star Maker. Do you remember the company Star Maker? I do. Yes. Yes. Okay. So. <laughs> I, I can tell by your by your enthusiasm that you, that you were not as uh, high on them. I was not high on them either. But um, yeah. So what yeah. these companies would do, Star Maker was one of them. Is they would put out these cheap EP tapes 
that were just of a low quality, but they would make them, and they would produce them cheaply, and then they would sell them extremely cheaply. And so the reason I bring this up is because I remember seeing Red Scorpion everywhere. I mean, I saw this tape, um, not just in, like, you know, Blockbuster stores and Suncoast and things like that, but, Chris, I saw Red Scorpion at Walgreens, I saw it in drugstores, I saw it in grocery stores, because it was a cheap tape that you could buy for nine bucks. I don't know how it sold, um, but I do remember seeing, you know, Star Maker, they, their, their thing was they had this gold trim on the VHS box, and I only remember, I only remember a few films of them. I remember the Red Scorpion cover, um, I remember Children of the Corn, and I remember they think they did a couple Incredible Hulk films. But yeah, that, that is one of the things that I vividly remember about Red Scorpion, is that um, Star Maker attained the rights to this film and tried to make money off it by, you know, putting it, putting it out there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, Shapiro, Glickenhaus, they weren't exactly uh, a, a huge company, so I don't know how the rights went from one company to another in terms of uh, the home video release. But this is, you know, a perfect movie to basically having a bin near the the, the cash registers at Walgreens, because you know if you're hey, if you're a guy and you're in Walgreens and you're you know buying a 12 pack and some beef jerky and you're waiting in line and you're digging through this and you see oh hey there's Dolph Lundgren big giant machine gun eight bucks sure what the hell why not it's perfect. Yeah, no, I mean, yeah, so the, like I said, that was one of the things I was looking forward to talking about with you, is I, like I said, I don't remember much, like I said, I remember The Children of the Corn, um, I, I think I remember uh, one of the Incredible Hulk movies, and I know they had a catalog of other titles, but yeah, they were, they must have been able to get the rights to Red Scorpion pretty cheaply, but yeah, this was one of those titles that was in, um, that was in those bargain bins constantly, I mean, it was, it was everywhere, I remember even seeing it Rite Aid. For crying out loud! I mean, this thing was—I mean, it was—it was cheap, and you know, considering that you know, videotapes, even if you know, okay, so videotapes had been out for about six months or so. If you were lucky, you were able to find one for about twenty bucks. But again, a brand new tape of a uh, of a cheesy action movie for nine bucks—that was that was considered a steal, a bargain. Oh, definitely, and like I had said earlier, in terms of the home video release, that you know, the big thing that that this film reminds me of was the first time ever going to a blockbuster and yeah i know that a lot of people associate block blockbuster with a with pure evil even though the whole home video wars and everything that's that's all done it's over they're all they're all done now so but you know back then it was the first trip to the the, the big shopping center in uh, daily city california uh here was this huge store blockbuster you know, it just blew every other video store out of the water. I mean, that's how that's how you look at it when you're 11 or 12. I mean, you don't you don't really think about oh, this is a big corporation that's gonna hurt the the small local stores. That's it's just not a thought that you have. I mean, you're thinking oh my God, look at this place, look at this. Uh, to to paraphrase uh, Christopher from The Sopranos, this this smell of candy and carpet and and all these movies just <laughs> everywhere. What, what you know. You, you can actually get the new releases. You know, a lot of times at these smaller stores, they only have, would have like four or five copies, and you'd be, you know, waiting, you know, four months to watch uh, Police Academy 5. Uh, but finally, yeah. you know, here's this, there's a whole wall of Red Scorpion VHS tapes. And so it, it was a big deal at the time, and, and so that's that's a, a big memory that I have the, that I associate with Red Scorpion. 
Oh, yeah, see, so, yeah, you and I are exactly on the same page. And, you know, I, I am 100% for, um, you know, streaming media. That's the way people are getting their... Uh, their content nowadays it's it's easier it's 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 faster it's definitely more convenient i get that but there is a certain kind of nostalgia for um you know uh like i said going back to the nightly movie you know that they just don't have anymore that that was a that was that's a thing of the past that was you know always a treat to have um and like i said just going into a video store going to the uh movie section and you know seeing what they have and looking through that bargain bin uh, I don't think even physical media is going away. You know, um, th there's always going to be a market for it. Um, just the other day, in fact, I was you know rifling through the <laughs> the bargain bins at Walmart. Um, but yeah, like I said, I, I do miss these days, and I do every time I think of Red Scorpion. Despite the Synapse Films release that um, that that is amazing. Don't get me wrong. I do have to you know go back and I think about that that cheesy gold trimmed Star Maker VHS box for this film. Yeah, it, it's just, it's a memory that sticks in your head. It reminds you of a different time and a different place. Who knows why these kind of silly things you know, stick with us. Uh, they just do. Um, but yeah, certainly once now with the, the Synapse release that, that came out about five years ago, uh, I mean, it, it's almost, it's incredible that this movie has that sort of a release. I mean, I never would have would have figured that you would get such a stacked, loaded blu-ray release of red scorpion and what's great is it was kind of the first of of these new blu-rays for lundgren's movies that had all these extra bonus features i know you know obviously uh, universal soldier that had had a pretty good release um previously but in terms of his not so well-known movies this was a real boon and, and you know since then there have been really good releases for i come in peace and for army of one and and a few of his other movies and so it's it's a it's an amazing an amazing blu-ray and the, the the liner notes uh by jeremy are, are tremendous oh no and, you know and that, that's something else that you don't get anymore uh a heck of a lot these days are the liner notes and no. and and dvds and the fact that they that they put that in there i mean this was i mean i i would say you know arguably um the synapse films special edition disc that was put out um, I think it was put out there for the fans, for the people like you and I. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it did in sales, and I don't know how many uh, how many units they sold or anything like that. But if you're a fan of Dolph, then ch chances are you had to buy this this disc because it is a wonderfully put together um, artifact. Oh, it's it's an absolute must own. Um, there's you know scenes that were you know added in that were not in the the original theatrically released film. Um, it, the great bonus features there's an awesome almost 30 minute interview with Dolph um, there's interview with the uh, Jack Abramoff it's it, I mean it's just stacked I mean it's like it was really uh, an eye-opener when it was released that uh, that finally some of these lesser-known films from him are finally kind of being recognized as as cult favorites and and they're they're getting the treatment that they deserve yeah no um, yeah it, it really is amazing but if we going back to the film, if we look at the film, like we established already, um, Dolph's uh, portrayal of Nikolai Rachenko, he's an anti-hero. He's a Soviet super soldier. He's a Spetsnaz operative who is sent in to infiltrate this rebel army that poses a threat to Nikolai's superior. 
So he is sent in to assassinate the leader of this rebel uprising. Uh, apparently, the the Soviets and the Cubans are working together and are ravaging this um, the, the, this African country. And so, yeah, they they obviously they don't want the rebel uprising. So they send in their best of the best to go in, um, infiltrate the unit, get close to them, and then assassinate them. So on the offset, Dolph is not a good guy. He's he's like I said, like we established earlier, he is Ivan Drago, who um, is going to have a change of heart. But in these, in the first act of the film, I mean, the the other thing about the film that um, I know we're kind of going all over the place here, but it definitely is the perfect example of a three-act structure. And in this first act, um, Dolph is the villain. He is the bad guy uh, through and through. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, uh, you know, it establishes very, or very early on you know who he is, what his mission is. I mean, it's very—it's basic storytelling, but it—but it works. It, from right from the get-go, this is his mission. This is what he's supposed to do, and you know it's very easy to digest. There really isn't a lot of subtext going on early early in this film, and it. But that's that's what you want from a movie like this. You just want okay, what's the plot? What are we going to get into? What's the idea? What's the mission? And let's move on from there. And and I think the film does a really good job of establishing that very early in that first act. No, most definitely. And interestingly, I guess, you know, th this has gone on um, record in uh, Jeremy's notes as well as, um, you know, Dolph Lundgren in his interview also to discuss this as well. But I guess the film was going to open in a uh, snowy landscape. I believe it was Siberia, and it was going to, um, you know, uh, showcase uh, Dolph Lundgren's uh, Nikolai character um, pretty much kicking ass and doing what he does um, in a snowy landscape, and then it was going to transfer over to the uh, to the landscape that is um, that is seen in the film. I guess due to time constraints and budgetary restrictions, they decided to axe that. Um, maybe it's because I've seen the film in its entirety multiple times, but I gotta admit, I think there was a good decision them axing that because I would say the the setting of the film is a character in itself, and I almost feel like they they sh they didn't need to mess with that or um, juxtapose that in any kind of way. Well, I, I can see where, where you're going with that, though, you know, watching the interview with Lundgren where he describes it, I think he makes a good point that, that the, the dropped opening sequence um, you know, in the snow in Russia would have been cool in, in terms of just showing the contrast between where he's been all his life and you know, suddenly now he's in this completely different place in Africa. And so I think, you know, at least in my head, uh, that makes that opening sequence sound pretty cool. Um, but like you said, it, it's, it's not really something that, that the film absolutely needs to, to tell its story. Well, and yeah, exactly. And um, I did, like you said, I think it definitely would have looked really cool. Um, but, you know, the, the film just has such an epic feel and that the camera shots and the setting is so beautiful. I mean, my God, um, even to this day when I watch it, you know, it's just in just this hot, you know, African desert. It, it's, it's like I said, it's a character in itself that the characters are all interacting with. Um, and you watch it, um, I almost feel like I need need a shower afterwards because, I mean, the, every, every character is sweating profusely throughout this film that, um, as a viewer, you definitely, you definitely feel that as well, I feel. Oh yeah, it's it's a it's an extremely grimy movie. Uh, That's you know, the word I was looking for, grimy. Yeah, yes, <laughs> especially the scene in the saloon. You know, you just uh, you watch that and you're just like, God. I mean, the smells that must be coming off some of these people in that saloon. Uh, oh, and the smoke. 
Oh yeah, I mean credit to, to yeah. Joseph Zito for for kind of creating that atmosphere, and you know it's just it just everything just looks gross, really. Yeah, no, I mean, and this is, I mean, let's face it, this is a guys guy movie. Um, I you know there I don't think there is that there are a few females in the film, but I don't think they really have any lines. I mean, this is a a guys guy movie, and Dolph Dolph's accomplice or his I don't even know if I want to call him an accomplice or an assistant, but he gets a partnered up with um, not just a lieutenant in the uh, in the uh, rebel army, but also an American journalist, and he is your typical ugly American, uh, portrayed by a great character actor, M. Emmett Walsh, who portrays this uh, this foul-mouthed uh, journalist. I'm curious, um, you know, obviously you, you, a film like this needs an American, um, considering that this is going to play to American audiences. So you kind of need that American element to kind of... Um, step into the picture and kind of, you know, um, give us someone to relate to in a sense. So I understood that. I'm curious as you watch this, what do you think of M. Emmett Walsh in this role? Oh, I love him in this one. I mean, he do is you? just, oh, I, I think he is just an awesome, just asshole reporter. First off, I mean, just the name, you know, his name, Dewey Ferguson. I mean, what a, I mean, that's just a great name. I mean, the next time I'm signing for a package, I'm going to be signing Dewey Ferguson. I mean, that's, a, <laughs> that's, just, that's an awesome name. And, and I think you need, you need a character like that because, you know, the premise of the movie is you have this elite Soviet soldier. And so, you know, as an audience, you're like, well, why on earth should we be cheering for this guy? This guy is a Russian soldier. And that's essentially M. Emmett Walsh. I mean, he's like, well, what the hell are we listening to this guy? Well, I mean he says it a lot better i mean i love so many of the the insults the anti-russian lines that he has is just you know, commie pigs pickles goddamn russian yeah. and and oh he's just got so, so i mean he he's got some of the best lines i mean there, there's the one scene where they're in the campfire and and he just has one of the best lines ever where he just he just says well well yippee d fuck i mean it's just great yeah i mean you can't, no he, I mean, he I, is I, I he is well, he is such a prick, and um, just the balls on him. I mean, my God, a, a man the size of Nikolai, you know, Dolph's character, and just he, not only does he have just these these balls on him, too, I mean, he just constantly talks shit to uh, Lundgren, and he, you know, punches him repeatedly, and that that's one of the reasons why, um, you know, I guess if they wanted to hit some of the tropes of, you know, some of those... Uh, other action pictures that kind of followed a lot of these same lines. You know, if you look at Commando, Arnold teamed up with Ray Don Chong, and if you remember uh, in Rambo: First Blood Part Two, you know, um, Sylvester Stallone teamed up with a uh, with a female accomplice as well. I guess what they could have done is they could have had um, this this reporter, this journalist, be a female as well, and she could have been spitting on him and talking all sorts of shit to him and everything like that. And of course, you know. Um, Dolph Lundgren is not going to, is not going to defend himself at all. But I'm watching this and I'm thinking, oh my God, like, man, Emmett Walsh, he, he, he could get his ass handed to him at any minute now. And the, the fact that Dolph just continually sits there taking his shit is, <laughs> is amazing to me. Oh yeah, I mean, and they, they could have gone the conventional route and had the, you know, the hot, the hot blonde and and that could have been the sidekick and you know a gratuitous uh, shower scene or god knows what 
And, and certainly there's there's plenty of Lundgren movies where, where that is the case. But I just think M. Emmett Walsh, he just adds so much to the movie. And it's just, it's a great, he's, he's got such a good personality. And in, in a movie where, you know, the acting is not really the first thing that you think of, I think he's just a lot of fun. Um, you know, he kind of reminds me a little bit of, of Burt Young in, in the earlier Rocky movies. Just, just, to, just the way he's just a constant just dick you know no matter what and in in just i think he's he's fantastic and just so many awesome lines he's got you know i wouldn't trust him as far as i can piss and it's just great yeah no and you know you bring up an excellent point that i really didn't even think about but no you really bring up an excellent point chris is just the fact that you know our hero in the film is is a bad guy i mean our hero in the film is a trained super soldier killer who is essentially you know he's sent in to you know kill someone so of course you're not going to have this American person be this you know sweet good-natured you know American who of course you know you, if, if from the writer's standpoint and the director's standpoint if you want to go to Dolph Lundgren's side and sympathize with him then of course your American is going to be as stereotypically ugly as Emmett Walsh is in the film so um, yeah no I totally agree with you yeah, I mean, I think things things play out uh, a little bit. I mean, obviously, he's not really, I wouldn't call him Dolph's sidekick in the movie, but I think you can no. kind of have some parallels between their relationship and, um, you know, Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi in Red Heat. It's kind of, it's, it's a little similar. Obviously, I think in that one, Belushi is a, is a full-on partner, but in terms of that, you know, hey, who the hell is this Russian? Why am I listening to him? What's the deal here? I think there's some some similarities between uh, Belushi and Red Heat and M. Emmett Walsh and Red Scorpion. No, that, that's an excellent comparison. Excellent comparison. Um, yeah, but you know, we, in these scenes, you know, we have um, Dolph's Nikolai character ingratiating himself in this camp, um, and we get some. You know, like I said, that the first act of this film is extremely impressive. Um, you have this uh, car chase scene where Dolph is doing all of his own stunts. Um, jumping from you know the the vehicle that is moving to a motorcycle, and it's all done to the score of Little Richard. Um, definitely, uh, the, this score that they provide in the film, um, I, I always felt definitely adds a unique flavor to the script, to the feel of the film, and definitely helps make it stand stand out from everything else in uh, in Dolph Lundgren's filmography, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, you don't naturally put Little Richard and high octane action films. Uh, in the same breath, but uh, but it works. I mean, they're fun. His songs are, are a lot of fun in this movie, and yeah, the sequence you mentioned when they they bust out of the out of the prison, uh, it's it's really cool. It's it's good old fashioned stunt work. Um, I, I from you know Dolph's uh, uh, interviews on the on the Blu-ray. I mean, he pretty much did all those stunts himself, and I think they look great. I mean, they they're they're really kind of a uh, of that era. I mean that's that's the kind of stunts that you you would want in in these sort of movies and and it, it looks really good and um, yeah it, it's it's a nice it's a, it's a really well done sequence and it's a, a good way to kind of get the story going and get these uh, these initially three characters kind of off on on their adventure. Yeah no so um, you know the the first act of the film is extremely action packed um, and you know um, it's no big secret but. Uh, uh, Dolph's Nikolai character um, fails in his mission. He is, uh, you know, um, supposed to assassinate this uh, leader of this rebel uprising. Um, the leader is, you know, not very trusting, you know, rightfully so. And Dolph fails in the mission. 
Um, and he's left for dead, and he's left back with his superiors, where he is tortured. And we get some uh, torture sequences that are, uh, I'll, I'll say it, they're extremely disturbing, especially the scene where he is just poked with needles. Um, it's, it's, you, you feel for his character. Right, and, and that's a, that scene with the needles, yeah, really well done. And I know a lot of the, the, the practical effects were, were done by uh, Tom Savini, who is you know, really famous for his, uh, his effects work in, in a lot of horror movies. And uh, he does some awesome work in this with the, with the practical you know, limbs that have been blown off and, like you said, the needle scene. And, and those little bits, I, they add a ton to this movie. They really make it kind of stand out. I mean, there's some really gnarly stuff in this movie. Oh, yeah. Like you said, tons of gnarly stuff. Um, and a lot of it was left on the editing room floor, which um, I, I think was... You know, I guess I can understand it. This was 1989. Um, today, I think it would have definitely been still left in the film. Um, but yeah, you get to see some cool stuff by Tom Savini. But if you did not know that Tom Savini worked on this film, I don't think you would um, know that it was really Tom Savini because his flair is a lot of the work that he did and a lot of his um, his style and his flair is unfortunately left on the editor, editing room floor. Um, but yeah, no, he, he does great work in the film. Yeah, that that was a that's a big plus. I think it's something that kind of sets it apart. You know, I I've always kind of looked at this movie as it's it's a great canon movie that canon didn't make. Uh, you know, there's there's a few canon wish they could make it. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, definitely. But I mean, I think it it, it you know if canon had made this, I think it, yeah, I think you you wouldn't really look twice. You, you'd say, oh, okay, yeah, that's a that's a canon film. Um, so I I I think it falls in that category. There's a few other movies from that era. Uh, Death Before Dishonor, uh, you know some other movies l like that that are, that even though they weren't actually made by Ken, I think they have that spirit to them, and, and that that's sort of how I've always kind of looked at Red Scorpion as it's a a really good canon movie that Canon didn't actually make. No, that's an excellent comparison. Excellent comparison. Um, yeah, it definitely out of all the Canon pictures, assuming this did, you know, we talked about this last week with Masters of the Universe, how I felt Masters of the Universe is the best looking of all the. Uh, of all the uh, canon films, um, this definitely would have uh, definitely shined out of their entire filmography uh, slate, most definitely. So, yeah, certainly, um, and definitely with the uh, the kind of movies that they were making at this point. I mean, right around in, in the eighty eight, eighty nine. I think that's when the what what you can what you can call production values of canon films started to take a bit of a dip um and and so yeah i think this one is, is a lot better than the stuff that that canon was doing uh in the the very late 80s no yeah um going back to you know this uh going back to nikolai failing the mission um the, the other thing that i that I found just so interesting about this character is you talk about how the first act of the film um this nikolai rachenko is you know he's the villain of the film and let's face it he doesn't have his uh what do i want to call it his epiphany and his his moral compass does not get righted um well until the second act um he he is he's sent in to assassinate this this uh this leader of this um army um you know from the beginning of the film and he's about to do it i mean if if the rebel if the rebel army was not keen to Dolph and his motives, Dolph would have succeeded in his mission, he would have gone back home, and he would have been a villain. I always thought that was such a, uh, that, that was such a unique and original touch for this character to have. Yeah, because, you know, a lot of movies in this style, you know, they would have had, you know, Lundgren 
basically an all-out good guy after probably the first 15 minutes. You know, they would have had, you know, the, the failed, uh, they would have had him being turned on by the Russians and, and him kind of realizing that he's been wrong very early on so that he can be heroic the, the rest of the movie. But like, like you said, it's, it's kind of interesting that this one, it takes its time. It does not wrap it takes it up its time, real yeah. quick. Yeah, it, it's, it's basically going to give this character some time to breathe. And yeah, it, it's not until much later in the film that he's going to have that switch and that he's going to make that decision that he's been, uh, that he's been lied to and that he's been uh, basically a, a puppet for an evil regime and that he's going to turn the tables. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very, a very cool uh, difference between similar movies where that, that decision is made extremely early, uh, whereas this one, it, it takes its time and, and it's really uh, through a, a lot of the scenes with, uh, between Dolph and the Bushmen is where that transformation kind of takes place. Well, you know what I almost feel any other film would have done, to be perfectly honest, is they would have shown him at the beginning, um, yeah, he is working for the villains, he is working for the bad guys, but they would have shown him, shown early on that there was a glimmer of hope with him, in him at the beginning. You know what I mean? They would have shown him yes. maybe he had a daughter who he was writing a letter to, or they would have shown him, um, you know, talking back to one of his superiors. I, I think, you know, movies nowadays would have gone as far as, you know, showing him, you know, um, holding a puppy. Or something like that, you oh, know what sure. I mean, at the beginning. Yeah. Um, but they, they don't do that. And so um, that definitely is, a, a, again, work, works for the film. No, absolutely. It's a, you know, like, it's, it's a character that, that's, yeah, it's, it's a, lo, a fairly somewhat low-budget action shoot 'em up but the character has a little bit of depth. And I think there, there might be people listening to this who who think Red Scorpion and depth, and they maybe fall out of their chair, but it's there. <laughs> it's, it's part of the movie, and it's part of the character, and I think it's something that 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 element is what has made the movie work as the years have gone on. Um, you know, no matter how dated the the music may feel, or how you know some of the some of the the sequences may feel, you've got this undercurrent of of a character who has just a little more going on than, than you would think in, in a, a, a movie called Red Scorpion starring Dolph Lundgren. There's just a little bit more to it than, than what's on the surface. Well, and you know, you talk about how the music makes the film dated. Um, I would actually argue that them choosing Little Richard as the music helps make the, helps the, make the film hold up nowadays you know so much more in my opinion because if they had chosen something you know circa 1980s you know what i mean um it, yes. you know today yeah it definitely wouldn't uh, wouldn't work uh nowadays but you know the fact that they went with this classic you know <laughs> this classic little richard rock score or whatever um is one of the things that still makes it it was fun in 1989 it was fun in 1992 93 when i first saw it um and it's still fun nowadays yeah, it's it's more to the fact that it's it's just an odd on the surface an odd combination of you know Little Richard and action movies, and it's it's you know I think if you if you tell somebody oh man I just saw an awesome action movie uh, with a lot of Richard a lot of Little Richard music you kind of look at them like huh what um, but yeah. it's uh, it, it 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 actually is a lot of fun and it it's it kind of it adds a bit of a, a bit more than than you would normally get in this kind of a movie. Uh, but you know what's interesting to notice too um, that, that 
that I feel also has to be discussed, especially when we're looking at music, is that, yeah, it is fun, it is odd, but if you look at everyone, um, and I can't believe we're going here, but, you know, when Guardians of the Galaxy came out a few years ago, the first one, I remember everyone was just, you know, raving about the soundtrack, about how amazing the soundtrack was, or how it was taking these these old classic pop songs and was, you know, um, you know, putting them next to action sequences. To me, I always looked at they were doing that to be more novel and silly in a lot of ways, more than anything else, where I feel like um, what they're doing in Red Scorpion in terms of, you know, juxtaposing the music with the action, I feel like this is more real. And what we see nowadays, you know, populating the, the cineplexes and everything is is just more of um, of their way of, you know, kind of hitting upon some of these tropes, but doing it in kind of like a, a winking fashion. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean... You know, there was a movie a few months ago that, that I'd seen, you know, the Hitman's Bodyguard, the Ryan Reynolds, Sam Jackson movie. And, you know, there's yeah. all kinds of needle drops and wink, wink, and hey, here's here's a, a, an old 80s song, and we're going to have this, this horribly violent scene. And, and uh, it's, I, yeah, it, it, to me, it's, it's, it's just, it doesn't work. It, it's, it, it doesn't just, work. It, it doesn't feels, feel as organic. You know what I mean? Well, they're, they're just, they're trying too hard. And it's yeah. It's just it's. Whereas in Red Scorpion, it doesn't feel that way. It just feels like these Little Richard songs are just kind of a character in the movie. Um, you know, they they it it's it doesn't it doesn't have to me the same. A isn't this isn't this funny? How we're playing this song and during these action sequences, it's not the same thing. It, it, it's there's a, it's just a subtle difference to how it's done in Red Scorpion. Well, and let's face it, you know, M. Emmett Walsh's American journalist character, he is this old, grizzled um, journalist, you know what I mean, who, you know, that's his music. And so, like you said, um, he's a great character, the music is a character, so it makes sense that that music would um, would tie in with that particular character, and that he would bring along this uh, cheesy little, you know, radio as he's out in this uh, in this desert you know this desert wasteland you know if you will you know what i mean oh yeah no i mean if you're if you're dewey ferguson you got to have your tunes i mean there's just no <laughs> exactly answer buts about it yeah and dewey ferguson let's face it he is not going to be listening to the the uh the guns and roses or the death leopard of the era you know that's just oh. not his character so no, god no god no no dewey ferguson he's <laughs> He's a he's a man who uh, of his of his era and and yippee dee fuck I'm gonna listen to R- Little Richard. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you know we go into the second act of the film. Um, Nikolai is able to escape, um, but uh, he passes out in the desert where he is rescued by the Bushmen. Um, now this Bushman is such a fun character. Um, I will say the second act of the film is definitely slow. I mean, like I said, we we have to we have to let the film breathe a bit, and some could argue that the film takes its time in breathing. But again, this character, the film is so character driven that you really have to um, you you really have to see Nikolai have this full on transformation. So we do get um, a bit of a long second act. Um, one of the things that that I was going to talk to you about is these scenes with. Um, with Dolph and the Bushmen, it can almost be a silent film because there's not a heck of a lot of dialogue. It's very, it, it's kind of slow and methodic, and it's not a film that you can have on for background noise. You really have to watch the relationship between the Bushmen 
and uh, and Nikolai as they are interacting and getting to know each other. No, that's a good point. I mean, like like I mentioned earlier, yeah, the stuff with the Bushmen. You know, when I was younger. It was like, oh man, we are spending a lot of time with this Bushman. I don't know what what is a lot of looking at my watch. Uh, just kind of uh, not really understanding what's going on here, but yeah, I think when you watch it today, it, it is. It's slow. It's there's just no other no other term for it. But I think it's it's just very interesting. It's just it's not the kind of stuff that you usually would see in a movie like this. And uh, you know, I, I guess from from the liner notes, this was an, an actual Bushman, and I think yeah. he does a, a fantastic job as the Bushman. No, he does a wonderful job as the Bushman, and when when you hear what they had to do, I mean, I guess he had his own translator, and his translator had another translator, so you can just imagine um, what was going on on set and filming these scenes, but I don't think you would get, um, nowadays, and if they were going to do something like this, you wouldn't get something that is um, as, as real as this was, and I mean, I'm sorry, but in filming Red Scorpion and these scenes with the Bushman, they are keeping it real. <laughs> I mean, and they are oh, making yeah. it as authentic as possible, and it works. No, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I who even knows who would be cast as the Bushman if the movie was was today? Uh, but I mean, they could not have done better than this guy. I mean, he just he's legit. I mean, he's not somebody that you he's not somebody that you see in this movie and you're like, oh man, I remember seeing him on a Twenty One Jump Street a few months ago or. I yeah, know, oh, no. man, remember when he was the he was the librarian on that Family Ties? You know, oh man, that guy's great. He's a, no, this guy is the Bushman, and Dag Nummit, he is going to play the hell out of this Bushman. Yeah, no, and you know, like we said, you know, the second act is a little slow because you're really developing, and um, Dolph's uh, moral compass is getting is getting righted, you know, here. Um, and but you know, you still get to see the bad guys, the villains doing what they do and so you know that their characters getting even more established so inter you know interspersed with the scenes of uh of Dolph and the Bushmen we get to see the destruction of this uh, of this African landscape at the hands of the uh of the Cubans and the Soviet forces and so this is really making you hate these hate these villains even more so um one of the things that um that I will say almost kind of hurts the film slightly not much but there is not really a real villain to the film. I mean, there, there is there is the superior, you know, there is Nikolai's superiors in the film, um, who he ends up uh, turning against, obviously, but the fact that this film does not really have a, a real villain, um, I don't know, I almost feel kind of hurts it a bit. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of wish that there had been sort of the, the, the big guy that, that he could have fought you know, they, they, you know, they have the guy, the ball guy with the tattoo, but he's not really any kind of threat. You know, it, it's, but yeah, you want that sort of the main guy that he can tangle with at the end. I mean, there are, I mean, some really good actors who I think are, are you know, play some of the heavies. I mean, you've got, you know, earlier in the movie, you got Brian James. You know, he's classic. That's what I was gonna and, say, yeah. Like, yeah, he's, he's wasted. He, kind of, yeah, because you don't really get that. There's really no finality that, for for him. Yeah, no, he could have been a wonderful villain. I mean, who you know gets his ass kicked early on, but comes back. You know, I mean, I mean, and he plays the villain um, so to where he's so hateable. Um, it's such a disappointment that you're going to cast someone like Brian James and he's going to um, 
just kind of go by the wayside, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I, it, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of strange how, how his character, you know, there's really not much of a, of a resolution. Uh, but there's another, you know, really good actor who plays the, uh, the, the head of the Cuban forces, uh, Carmen Ar- Arganziano. He's a, yes, awesome I knew I recognized character. him. I had to look him but up. He's an awesome character actor. I mean, he's been in loads of cool movies and TV shows, and I've liked that guy for a long time. And, you know, with with the scenes that he's given here, I think he's very good, and, and I love his demise at the end. I think it's, it's, a, it's a really cool death. Um, oh, yeah, it gets his arm blown off. Oh, it's that's great, and then you know just that that slow stagger when he's trying to get the grenade. I mean, it's 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 pretty cool, and then he's a he's a really good actor. But again, he you don't really get a lot of scenes with him because there's just not not really that that main central villain that that you probably would want in this kind of a picture. Yeah, no, um, it's it, it's a small thing, but it's one of those things that um, I don't know. It, it's one of those things that I almost feel kind of kind of helped it become one of the more forgotten films in Dolph's filmography, you know, later on in the years. I think if there was a, a definitely a memorable, stronger villain, maybe this might have, I, I'm not saying it wouldn't, it would have risen out of the, uh, out of the bargain bins or anything like that by any means, but, um, you know, it definitely might have been something that uh, would have been up there with, you know, um, Ivan Drago and He-Man, you know what I mean, as, as far as a memorable film. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it's missing missing someone like a Brian Thompson from that era for, you know in, in, with a with yeah, kind of a that would have been great. Russian accent as kind of the you know he's the the big guy that that eventually him and Dolph are going to you know they're going to you know settle things like like these kind of movies are supposed to be settled and and there's really just nobody that that really fits that mold in this movie. No, no. So but Again, th- th- this is the this is the second act of the film. It is a little slow, um, but you have great character development, and this is where Dolph's character really becomes dynamic, faces this true arc, and realizes that the people who he had been working for are not good, for lack of better terms. And we have a wonderful scene where he rips his uh, rips his dog tags off his neck, throws them out into the desert. Um, he has a, a a goodbye with with the Bushmen, and he is going to come back and help the rebel army against his superiors yeah yeah definitely uh you know anytime you get that kind of a transformation and then you get you get the shot of him going you know let's kick some ass and then just immediately yeah that's what he's doing he's kicking some ass there's really no not much of a transition from that to the actual ass kicking but uh but yeah it, it's a it's a really it's it's a cool way to jump off the uh the, the third act and, and and you know now we're kind of down to the meat and potatoes and, and this is what we this is what we're here for you know we've we've enjoyed the scenes with the bushmen we've enjoyed uh, the, the more subtle moments in the movie but we've enjoyed dewey ferguson's anti you know russian uh, uh in Insults. but you know now now <laughs> here we go we we're now we're going to get to the nitty-gritty and and the movie delivers well, not only does it deliver um but there's a couple things uh real quick before we get to the third act that that, that i always thought was interesting um, especially on on the next viewing um the first thing is you know how is it you 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 wonder okay how is it that the um rebel army is able to accept this this soviet super soldier back into their camp after he tried killing them and the fact that he has the tattoo of the scorpion and the fact that he has the tattoo of the scorpion 
that is what puts him back in everyone's good graces and everyone is going to follow him. Um, you know, I don't mind it too much, but it's one of those things, you know, I feel that the third act of the film goes goes almost a little too quick. And even in that interview, uh, Dolph Lundgren agrees with that. He feels that the third act is a little too truncated. But it's one of those things that has such a long second act where, you know, you see this transformation in Dolph's character. And just for the camp to be like, oh, you have the tattoo of the scorpion. That means you're okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's a little bit of, you know, the movie being a movie. Uh, it's, 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 yeah, it doesn't quite make a ton of sense, but man, I think at that point, you know, the audience is primed, you know, we're ready, we want, we, we, we've been through everything, Let, let's get on with the, with the, with the, with the shoot 'em up, bang, bang, kaboom, and, and so I don't mind, I know it, it might be kind of a, an odd transition at that moment, but I, to me, it's like, okay, let's get on with it, now let's go, let's, let's kick some ass. Yeah, exactly. Let's kick some ass and ass kicking they do. This is this is a wonderful assault. The one thing the other thing that that I think is interesting, it kind of helps make this stand out is okay, if this film was made today, um, and like I said, this storyline has been done numerous times, you know, again after this. Um, but what you would think is that maybe, okay, Dolph Lundgren comes back. He um, he helps the the rebel army. He helps train them and everything, and he helps prepare them for the uh, the next attack by this uh, by this army. But it doesn't happen that way. Instead, it's Dolph and company storm the enemy compound. I always thought that would, that was an interesting, unique little difference there. Yeah, no, and it's very cool. It's uh, it, it's basically hey, you know, we've we've they they've taken it to us for this whole movie. Now we're gonna take it to them. And and I love I love the music in that sequence and there's just constant mayhem. Everything's blowing up tanks, uh, you know, all sorts of vehicles. I mean, this is this is what you this is what you're here for. And it's almost as if Joseph Zito is saying, "Look, yeah, I know maybe you got a little slow there in the middle, and you've been patient. So now I'm going to give you what you want and, and enjoy." No, and th- I'm glad you brought that up because the score. I love the score in oh, yeah. this final act of the film. I almost wish, um, and I can still recite it in my head, actually, as I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to do it, obviously, on, on the show. But um, it, it's one of those things that I almost feel I wish would have been front-loaded in the film and, you know, and brought up earlier because, yeah, I love the score in this final act of the film. Yeah, that main theme, uh, it, it's, it's really well done, and I, and I agree with you. I think it probably is something that should have been used uh, a little bit earlier, um, but but man, I mean, once it, it kicks in in that in those those last twenty minutes, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the the score for the Delta Force. Uh, just it's a little bit of that quality. Just that you know, this is this is the music that you want to basically you know attack a a, a Russian uh, outpost in in Africa. This if if that's gonna happen, this is the score that you want it to be to. Yeah, no, no, most definitely. Um, and you know, surprise, surprise, it is a it is a all out shootout. Um, you know, the uh, the the Soviet and the Cuban forces really don't stand much of a chance. Actually, I mean, it's very similar to the to the the Trojan horse tactic that Odysseus um, employed on the on the Trojans. You know, he he sneaks up on them, and I guess that's the way to uh, to win a war. I guess is attack the enemy when they are least expecting it. But man. It, they, they really don't have much of a chance, and yeah, they, they get their asses handed to them. Um, Dolph blows tons of shit up, 
um, blows up his superiors. I mean, I love that 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 shot. It's a, one of the last few shots of the film. But Dolph is going to leave his superior for dead, and just him turning around quickly as his superior is getting ready to pull out a gun. He turns around quickly, does a 180, and boom, blows him away. I always loved that scene. Oh yeah, no, that's perfect. Uh, that's that's a great sequence. You know, we, we mentioned earlier the the scene with the the grenade, um, but but I love when he when he first enters the, the the indoor part of that compound, and yeah, he's just he's just blowing away people left and right, and, and he comes across the big double-barreled rifle, and you know that's like yeah you know, we've seen we've seen the double-barrel rifle earlier in the movie uh, when it was being shot on the, uh, the 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 target range, and as soon as we see it in that scene early on, we're like oh yeah at some point you know Dolph's gonna get that gun. I mean that's yeah. There's no reason to have this gun in this in this scene if you don't think that Dolph's going to get it at some point. Yeah, there's so no like, reason to have you know, that he, scene if, if it's not going right. to come back. <laughs> well, right, yeah. I, I almost feel like when he sees the when he sees the gun in that room, it's, it's almost like when uh, when Bruce Willis sees the sword in Pulp Fiction. You know, it's kind of like it's like yeah. ah, you know, it's like and and it, you know, it, it's it's such an awesome piece of weaponry um you know i don't know if it's if it if it's an actual rifle or if it's you know something that was just designed for the movie i have no idea i know there are websites devoted to all the kind of firearms you see in these movies so you know somebody can probably point out if it's an actual real gun or not um but it just looks badass and, and that's all i care about no, it, it looks amazing, and yeah, the, these scenes are so well done. And like we talked about earlier at the beginning of the show, you know, um, this was this was you know, every every action hero, rising action hero, you know, during this time, you know, um, Sly had his Rambo, Arnold had his Commando, and this is this is Dolph's version of that. And so this final this final act where he, um, you know, is donning the war paint and the bandana is doing this full out assault. I mean, it is it is extremely similar. In terms of tone and the and the violence that we see um, to to you know Schwarzenegger's assault in Commando, you know his character John Matrix, you know he's trying to get his daughter back and everything. Um, but you know motives aside, it's essentially the same scene, the same the same army, the same the same hero. Yeah, pr- pretty much. Yeah, it's it's look, it's uh, by that point in terms of how action movies were going i mean this is what we wanted and these were the kind of scenes that that audiences loved and and red scorpion it it delivers on it and you know definitely joseph zito um you know he he knew it i mean he'd done it with with norris and missing in action and invasion usa and and he did a a great job giving uh giving red scorpion uh that that final third act uh kablooey fest yeah, no, most definitely. So, um, one of the things that we haven't talked about in the film, and um, I'm almost kind of glad that we haven't discussed it, but I feel like it's one of those things that needs to be discussed, is that this was one of the only films produced by infamous Washington, D.C. lobbyist Jack Abramoff. And I feel like that is one of those things that almost has made the film more memorable. To me, not so much. You know, it's a Dolph Lundgren picture. But um, that's one of the things, that's actually one of the few things that has put the film out there in the news and in the media is the fact that, you know, Jack Abramoff, you know, this um, this this lobbyist who, you know, milked people out of money and everything like that, produced a couple action pictures. One of those pictures was a Dolph Lundgren vehicle. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things that whenever you see any kind of a story about the movie for whatever reason, it, it's always kind of mentioned, oh, you know, produced by Jack Abramoff, the notorious lobbyist. 
and it, you know it brings to, to mind all the, the the different kind of things that were going on behind the scenes with the politics of the movie and uh, yeah it's it's not it's it's not a I, I think the film deserves to be recognized for more than just being produced by Jack Abramoff. I think it's it should be recognized as a good action movie that, yes, happens to be produced by Jack Abramoff. That, that's how I would clarify, characterize it. It is kind of weird, though, though, don't you think? I mean, it is. I, I can't think of too many other, you know, Washington lobbyists who have <laughs> who have produced, you know, who've gone in the who dabbled in the film business and produced um produced a film or two so it is one of those things that's um kind of a little odd you know what i mean it's not something you hear every day especially from you know your typical action picture now did you see the 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 film that the 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 one that kevin spacey did where he played jack abramoff i did see it it's to be quite honest it's not very memorable i i did see it and there are a couple references to um to n- not directly to Red Scorpion, but you see the poster in the background yeah. in one shot, and then you you hear Dolph Lundgren's name spoken in a couple other scenes, but that's about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's funny. I think there, is, I think there was one scene where he's like carrying around the poster, if if, if I if my memory serves me correctly. So it's it's kind of funny. It would have been I think it would have been kind of cool if they could have had a sequence in the movie. You know, obviously the movie's about him overall as his lobbyist, but I think it would have been kind of cool if they could have had maybe a, a 10 or 15 minute sequence about the production and maybe have gotten Dolph to come back and play himself. I, I always felt like that was a big missed opportunity in that movie. Oh, and, and if you know Dolph, you know Dolph would have been game. Oh. No, he would have been totally game for something like that. Yeah. No, I like I said, I don't remember much about the film. It it is pretty forgettable. I mean, the performances are good. You know, Kelly Preston is his wife. I remember does a really good job in the film. But um, yeah, you know, the, what I remember most about it is I remember there is a scene where he is uh, he is trying to get money and he's speaking to some people and he imitates Dolph Lundgren. He says, you know, let let's kick some ass. And he goes, no, that wasn't Arnold Schwarzenegger. That was Dolph Lundgren. I do remember that scene, but yeah, you know, that that's about it. Yeah, and I, I think I remember you know, Barry Pepper. He was pretty good in it as uh, like his his main. Yeah, that's right. In the movie, um, but yeah, I mean, it wasn't a terrible movie. It was just it was just kind of one that you watch. It kind of it somewhat holds your attention, and then you, you kind of forget about it. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I always when I when I was watching it, I just felt like what a missed opportunity to have a, a ten or fifteen minute sequence, you know, that just kind of goes over all the stuff that went on in the making of red scorpion and i think it would have made for actually some pretty good comedic fodder uh if you'd have had some of that behind the scenes stuff and 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 have brought dolph back to play himself but yeah i guess the movie just what it wasn't really what that movie was going for but i think they blew it on that front now let me ask you did you ever see the sequel that was um that was made i, I it's a sequel in name only however i know that Abramoff comes back once again as the producer. Um, did you ever see it? I know it stars Matt McComb. Yeah, no, I've never seen it. Uh, I, I remember seeing the box at a video store and thinking, hey, hey, all right, and then just kind of looking it over. I know it's got Michael Ironside, who I love. I know he's in it, but I've just never had the desire to... To, I, I don't think I've seen any of Matt McCombs movies and, and and I watch a lot of schlocky movies but I don't think I've ever seen any of his and it's it's never been one that I've heard anything good about and you know without it has really no other than the, the title I don't think has much of any connection to the uh, the original film at all 
No, yeah, no, I've never seen it either. It's never even gotten an official DVD release of any kind. It's one of those ones that is just forgotten. I almost wonder if, if Abramoff produced it to kind of do a tax write-off or something like that because it is just so forgettable. There's nothing going on with it, I understand. Though, though I, I do believe it was actually put out by Universal on home video, which was kind of surprising that it was a, a, a pretty You're right. you know, a big studio. Obviously, you know, big studios put out all all kinds of uh, straight-to-video stuff back in those days. But it's kind of surprising that, that they were the ones who put out the Red Scorpion 2. Yeah, no, no, it's interesting. But um, I have to wonder what was left on the editing room floor with, with Red Scorpion because the film just kind of ends, and that's one of the disappointments that uh, Dolph stated that he had with the with the film upon its conclusion is it, uh, you know, it just ends with, uh, you know, everyone is congratulating Dolph, saying, you know, you did it, man, you did it. And, you know, Dolph says fucking A, and the, the film just ends right there. It just kind of stops and ends. It's one of those things that you wish maybe there would have been a fade out of some kind or something, you know, that would have uh, that would have ended it more more appropriately. It's, it's it's an abrupt ending, but I think just for the sheer fact that the movie ends on the line "fucking a," I, to me that makes it worthwhile. I, I, I well, can't yeah. hate the ending too much, just because I mean, how many how many other you know? I think it's it's Red Scorpion. And I, I think the only other movie that ends on fucking A is uh, is maybe Fried Green Tomatoes, which was an odd choice at the time, uh, and, and I didn't see that coming at all. But but I think for Red Scorpion, it's abrupt. It's it's kind of it's 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 an odd ending. But just the fact that it, this movie ends on the line fucking A, it, it makes it, it it's it, it's just a little extra spice into the into the meal. It's it, yeah, it, it's not. The con- a conventional Hollywood ending, but but I, I love it. I, I think it's just a perfect way, and I know Dolph isn't fond of it, but hey, I, it works for me. Um, what 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 more do I really need from from the end of Red Scorpion? Just just give me just give me that uh that last line, and and, and I'm gonna walk out happy. No, it definitely, yeah. The closing line definitely works, and I, I've always loved it. Even as a little kid, I always loved it. It was one of those things that, you know, <laughs> again, going back to, you know, the home rental, you know, days and everything, you know, um, R-rated films were not as uh, not as prevalent and easily accessible as they are nowadays by, by our young youth. Um, so back then, hearing something like this in a film spoken by your hero um, was one of those things that was uh, it was pretty cool to hear, pretty cool to see. So. Well, see now, uh, well, now I wonder, because I wonder how did these you know, local broadcast TV stations, how, what, how does the ending play on some of those? Because you can't have uh, dropping F-bombs at the end. Is it just like, is it just kind of like mic'd out and then you just hear A and then that's it? I, I, I wonder if how, I remember how that right on, the, on those. Yeah, if I remember right, because I remember, like I said, this is the first my first exposure to The Punisher, first time I saw The Punisher, first time I saw I Come in Peace, um, first time I saw Red Scorpion, and these are films that are just littered with, um, you know, with the F-bomb and curse words. If I remember right, it did one of two things. They just, um, they just mic'd it out to where it was uh, bleeped, or if I remember correctly, because I had this recorder, if I remember correctly, I believe they had it dubbed to where he said, frickin' A. Or freaking oh, okay. a something okay. along those lines, but um, yeah, they could have yeah, they, they no. gone the uh, they could have gone the Die Hard two route and just done the Falcon A, Falcon A. I, I did not know. Is that what Die Hard two did? Well, yeah, this I, I think it was the the CBS the the CBS broadcast of Die Hard two, you know, during the uh, the 
obviously the great John McClane line of, you know, yippee ki motherfucker. It's, uh, this must be on YouTube, I'm sure you can look it up. It's basically yippee ki Mr. Falcon. <laughs> well, I remember one of my vivid memories of these, of these films that would play, uh, that would play, you know, in the evenings on some of these network channels. This is a really lame example. I don't know why I remember it, but, um... Uh, it was Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead, and it was being aired on Fox. And I remember all week long, Fox was, you know, promoting, you know, tonight is going to be, you know, the, the premiere of Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. It was a big deal, I remember. And I remember the scene where um, the little boy falls out the, uh, the, the second-story window and hits the ground and breaks his leg or whatever. And um, the, uh, I think it was Keith Coogan was the character, was the actor's name. Ooh. Keith Coogan sticks it sticks his head out the uh, the window and in the movie he says holy shit but they dub it out and they say and he says holy god and I remember going back to school and <laughs> we were all just laughing about that <laughs> you know being yeah, 8 well, years think, old cracking up yeah I think one of my favorites is the the, uh, the broadcast run of the uh, James Woods Michael J. Fox film The Hard Way and uh, one of the scenes where James Woods says son of a bitch they, uh, they replace it with slug in a ditch <laughs> good stuff. That's clever. That's clever, though, man. I mean that that I mean that, that that's better than Holy God. I mean Holy oh, God yeah, is yeah. just is just lazy. Yeah. No. It, I mean, I yeah. Obviously, I think it it was a pretty good one because I remember it to this day. So, so yeah. That, I mean, that's that's another thing that uh, is you know, kind of lost on on society is the uh, the 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 bad uh, dubs of of curse words in in these action movies because. You know, local stations really just don't run them anymore unless there's like a rain delay during a Cubs Brewers game. And even then, I feel like they would much rather. It's sad because even then, um, they would much rather air an infomercial or a rerun of some kind. You just don't. Even on the weekends, I remember a lot of these networks would air um, would, would air you know old movies or whatever, and you really don't get that too much anymore unless you have cable of some kind. You know, TBS will usually have films, but. Um, no, they they, they just they, I I miss these days, man. Yeah, no, I mean, in, in where I grew up in the in the Bay Area, you kind of had the, the the big three stations that would show these sort of movies. You had the the Channel Two, which is KTVU, which is now the Fox affiliate. There was Channel Forty Four, and then Channel Thirty Six, and those were kind of you know if if you were looking for the Chuck Norris, the Van Damme, and the Lundgren movies, that those were the stations that that would possibly have them. But yeah, that that's all done because now, I mean, you know, if you want to, if you want to watch a movie, you go to Netflix, you go to Amazon Prime, uh, you go to your on-demand on your 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 cable service, and you know, there's just so there's just it's just no, there's no need for it on, on these local stations anymore, and uh, it's it's just hey, the times they they change, just like there's no need anymore for the video stores. I mean, it's just it's, a, no. it's an era that's no. that's done. And I mean, as as fondly as I look back on those memories, uh, I, I I can't say that I would be, be probably going to too many rental stores these days because it's just it's just not uh, it's just not the way that we consume our movies anymore. No, but you know what is interesting? The one thing I will say is, yeah, a lot of these stations nowadays do not play these movies. But you know what's weird are the Spanish stations. You know, um, yes. I, we. we you know, I, I don't know what it is, but um, you know, um, the, these Spanish stations will play tons of stuff from the '80s, and pretty much, um, 
I, I would put money on it right now if I went to one of these Spanish stations. They're, right now on TV, they're either going to have a Dolph Lundgren film, a Seagal film, or a Van Damme film, or a Chuck Norris film. But yeah, these, these Spanish stations are constantly um, playing these films on, on loop. So uh, apparently there is still a market for wanting to watch these films on TV the old-fashioned way. Oh yeah, and God bless them. And and yeah, I mean there there have been times where I've kind of been you know cruising around some of these stations, and, and I'll see that one of these kind of movies is is on these these Spanish stations, and I feel like they get they they get away with more in terms of showing the violence than than the uh, the, the local stations back in the '80s and '90s. I, I don't know. Again, it's just the sign of the times but some of the violence that would be cut out back in those days even though these are not cable stations the the, the violence uh, is intact on some of these uh, spanish airings well and they will premiere a lot of these films well before um any of the any of the cable stations will get their hands on on any of these films i mean i remember you know uh dolphin uh, steve austin did a film about six years ago called The Package yes. and I remember that was that was on one of those Spanish stations about a year um, maybe even maybe even less than that but that was on um, pretty quickly after its release and I have yet to see it I imagine it's probably been on stars and whatnot those those premium channels but um, you know that, that there, there's something to say for that no yeah it's uh, you know the, hey it, whatever gets these movies exposed is, is good in my book and uh, and yeah if uh, if Whatever language, uh, I think the main reason, obviously, that these movies are so popular uh, in in other countries is because the dialogue really isn't the draw. It's uh, it's it's everything blowing up and everything being shot up, and that type of action is it's the same for no matter where you live. You, you, I think anybody can appreciate a, a good explosion. No, yeah, most definitely. So, um, you know, wrapping this up and getting to the end of this, you know, um, past couple episodes I did a ranking system, and, and the more I think about that, um, I don't know if that's a, that's necessarily fair to do, especially as we're watching these in chronological order. Um, so I'll just go with a with a simple recommend. But I'm curious. I think I pretty much know what your answer would be. Um, but would you recommend this film not just uh, not just for a doll fan from a doll fan, but um, you know, as an action movie, as a film in general, um, how does it rank with you? Yeah, I, I definitely recommend it. I mean, it's uh, it's not one that I'm completely over the moon for compared to stuff like The Punisher or I Come in Peace and some of his, you know, to me, it's not quite in that area for, for his films. Um, but I think it's a solid action film. It, it kind of captures that era really well. Uh, Lundgren's very good in it. There's good action. The the practical effects are really well done. So yeah, to me, it's a solid. It's a solid, you know, B plus kind of movie. Yeah, no, I I'm right there with you. Um, it's uh, yeah, like you said. Um, I find it interesting that because I I already talked to you, I'm going to be having you come back for uh, I Come in Peace here in the coming months. Oh, oh, but I um, can't wait. it's. Yeah, it's interesting that you that you put I Come in Peace above this one, but uh, but yeah, no, um, I'm right there with you. I think um, as an action picture, it definitely deserves um, it de deserves another watch. It definitely deserves a second look by anyone who um, thinks that uh, that Dolph Lundgren, especially at this time, was nothing more than a dumb meathead because he is giving so much more to this role. I think than um, than he is really given credit for. Um, 
So, but yeah, no, it definitely gets a recommend from me as well. I don't think I would put it up there with um, my favorite, uh, my favorites of his. Like you said, I'm I'm with you. I would definitely put Men of War above this one. But the whole idea of the soldier, um, the soldier who has been brainwashed, who is turning on his superiors, you know, has been done so many times after this. And I, I always. I always can't help but wonder: Did did Red Scorpion set a trend in place? Because you know, um, Dolph Lundgren redid that whole idea a couple times. We talked about Men of War and Bridge of Dragons. But you, do you know who pretty much remade this movie back in 1998? Hmm, 1998. Oh, you're not talking about that. Are you talking about the Dennis Quaid movie? No, no. Well, I, okay, because I remember there was that. a movie. No. There was a movie that Dennis Quaid did. I think it was called a Savior. Uh, which uh, I, I'm just thinking maybe might have some things in common with this one, but no. Okay, you go ahead. Who, who, which, which one are you thinking of? Well, I couldn't help but I was watching it and I was thinking, man, Kurt Russell pretty much did this exact movie, but did it in oh, a futuristic yeah. setting in Soldier. Oh yeah, yeah. No, you're right. That, yeah, it, it's the it is the same uh, the, the same basic uh, basic plot. Uh, absolutely. I mean, it's. I mean, you know, the setting has changed. You go from the the desert of Africa to uh, you know to outer space, but it's pretty much a beat for beat remake in, in a lot of ways. Um, and oddly enough, I think uh, for once, Dolph Lundgren's character actually has more lines of dialogue than Kurt Russell, which is really weird. But yeah, um, <laughs> and, you know, what's also odd is, as I remember actually listening to the. Uh, the commentary for Soldier, boy, that must have been a slow night, let me tell you. But I was listening to the commentary, <laughs> and uh, and they actually they mention in, in the commentary, uh, Paul Anderson, the director, um, says that when they were looking for to cast the villain for for Soldier, that they were they were, I, I don't think I don't know if they actually said that they were actually looking for Dolph Lundgren, but they wanted that Dolph Lundgren type um, to to be the villain. Um, obviously, it ended up being Jason Scott Lee, but but they they do mention on the commentary him by name that they were kind of looking for that type. So that's another kind of interesting parallel between the two movies. Yeah, no, no, it, it definitely. Um, but it but it is an original story. I feel in a lot of aspects, and you know, one of the things too that you know you have to hand it to Dolph is around this period of his life. I mean, he went from. Um, to pretty much a nobody to an overnight um, an overnight success and you know he was the toast of Hollywood you know thanks to Rocky IV so the period from about 85 to 88 or so were extremely busy and he you know he's gone on the record saying that he had you know various people um, in his ear telling him you know to take certain deals and things like that I mean you know c considering you know he was the you know from Sweden um, transplanted into Hollywood immediately um, the pressure that was on him um, you know, is is unimaginable to me. Yeah, to get that kind of well, he always tells the story about uh, you know going into the premiere of Rocky Four, you know nobody caring at all who he was, and you know basically he's just this guy kind of hanging out with Grace Jones, and then the movie ends, and basically his whole life had been transformed because now everybody was uh was interested in what he was doing and what he was up to, and so yeah, I mean for, for something someone like him who. You know, grew up in in Sweden, and then all of a sudden is uh, is now this huge international action star. Uh, you know, it must have been a pretty wild time for him, and I'm sure he had some wild times. But I think compared to a lot of people from that era, I think he he sort of managed it uh, pretty well, and and you know didn't didn't succumb to a lot of the pratfalls to that many others uh, in his position fell to in those days. 
Yeah, no, no, um, totally agree. And the other thing that you know that I think is interesting, again, watching these films in chronological order, I can't help but wonder. Okay, you have Rocky IV, where he has his physique, where his physique is on display, pretty much 100% of the movie, if you think about it. Yeah, he goes from that to Masters of the Universe, where again he is, you know, in nothing but that that armor and that loincloth or whatever. So his physique has to be on display 100% of the time in that. And then he goes to Red Scorpion, where you know he's shirtless for pretty much the entire you know second act of the film. So I mean, he is having to maintain this you know godlike physique. So I can't help but wonder. This is my theory, and maybe I'm a little wrong, but the films that he did after um, after Red Scorpion, he went from Red Scorpion, then he did The Punisher, then he did I Come in Peace, and then he did Cover Up. And in each of these films, he still has his physique. He's still extremely fit. But he is—he's um, covered up a bit. I kind of wonder if maybe this was Dolph and his manager and his agent saying, "Okay, you know what? I need to—I need to take a break a bit because my physique has been on display for the past three and a half years. I'm—you know what I mean? I'm—I'm—I'm going to relax yeah. a bit and I'm going to focus on my acting." Yeah, I mean, aside from the, you know, praying or whatever the hell he's doing in the sewers during the Punisher. Uh, he, he's he's mostly pretty well covered up. Same with uh, I Come in Peace, and uh, yeah, I think you're probably onto something there. That that uh, you know maybe that that was a, a conscious decision to say, look, you know, I and I, I think the same kind of goes with the with what Arnold did, uh, where he went from Conan, and you know obviously that was all his physique, and that that's what got you know, hey that's what put him on the map was was his his look. And then eventually moving into Terminator, which aside from the beginning portions of the movie, there, there really isn't that whole muscular, um, all the scenes of him and his, his physique. And, and I think that was sort of a decision, like you said, that, that Dolph probably made himself uh, with some of these uh, the, the movies that he started doing in, in the 90s uh, to, to you know, not, not, uh, not have to resort to just uh, showing off his body the whole time though certainly it, it is on display in a universal soldier though he not quite as much as van damme's was no yeah yeah most definitely so um but anyway no i've had a great time discussing this with you um thank you so much for coming back and um uh like we said uh you know we have a couple movies down the line but um i come in peace is going to be a fun chat so um i'm definitely looking forward to discussing that one with you Oh, absolutely! You know, I can't wait on that one. That's uh, that's very high on my uh, my list of favorites. But I, I definitely appreciate you having me on for uh, for Red Scorpion. Yeah, no, most definitely, man. Um, I really appreciate this. Thank you for joining me, and um, I'll see you all next time on I Must Break This Podcast. <laughs>